Good morning, everyone. This morning's Bible reading comes from the letter of St. Paul to the church in Philippi. So, Philippians chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so, somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. My name is Prash. I'm the senior minister here. I'll step away from the microphone to help Y out. Uh, it's great to have you here. And uh, welcome, especially if this is your first Sunday back after COVID shutdown. Really good to have you. Lovely to see the kids here and Kids Zone kind of rolling on and happening, which is really good. This morning, we're starting a five-week series through the month of August, thinking about our vision and our plan for the next five years. Vision's an interesting thing. Uh, when you talk about uh, vision, I'm always reminded of these words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German theologian, and he says this, 
God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realised by God, by others and by himself. Which of course means that you're on shaky ground when you start a vision series, a vision series for God's church. His point, of course, is that it is God's church. It is not defined by a single person's ideal of church or even a group of people's ideal of church. And it is, it's often dangerous, actually, for the person setting the vision, incidentally, to set that vision. He goes on to say that he enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of the brethren. In other words, it's very dangerous to be the person who's casting a vision for God's church. And yet, I'm reminded of these words from another author, this guy's Andy Stanley, um, and he says, vision gives significance to the otherwise meaningless details of life. Vision gives significance to the otherwise meaningless details of our lives. And here's why I think a vision series is wholly appropriate for us right now. We stand in a season where it feels like every day, every week, we don't know what's coming, do we? We're not sure what next week will be like. We're not sure if church will be on next week as a physical experience. We're not sure what it might look like uh, to meet together in the next two months, three months, six months, 12 months. We're not sure when we can actually sit next to someone whom we don't have some kind of blood relationship with. But here's, here's the reality. The pandemic will pass. There was a pandemic in 1918. We didn't even know about it till the start of this year for most of us. It will pass and God's church will continue and we will meet And so the question that we have for ourselves is, what will it look like for us? What are the enduring realities of God's church which continue throughout time? And so we do need a vision series. We need something that will set for us a guide for what church and God's people here at St Stephen's looks like beyond this particular season of a pandemic And so I want us to think about that, and I've chosen the passage this morning from Philippians 3, uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, because in a sense, this is Paul's vision for his own life. It's his own little vision statement of what his life is meant to be guided by, what he wants his life to look like, and by inference, it's also a vision statement for God's people, certainly the people reading it in Philippi in first century, and a vision statement for us who now read it as God's word again. And if you were to summarise, if you were to summarise the key point of, God, of Paul's vision here, it's this, he is captivated by Jesus Christ. He's captivated by Jesus. He says in verse 10, I want to know Christ. In verse 8 he says, I consider everything else garbage that I might gain Christ. The overwhelming theme of this little section of his letter is that Jesus Christ is the one he prizes, Jesus is the one he pursues, Jesus is the one he wants to gain. He is captivated by Jesus Christ, captivated by him. And that's his vision for his life, that's the most important thing in his life. Now we're all captivated by different things at various stages in life. This morning, I actually wanted to bring in for you a little soft toy that my daughter has. It's called a Beanie Boo. 
some of you have seen them, encountered them. Uh, so I said to Harriet this morning, could you, could, you, could, you, could you give me your Benny Boo just for this morning? I just want it for the sermon and then I'm going to give it back to you. No one else will get to touch it. Point blank, she said, no. Would not, would not release it to me. In fact, there were some tears when I pushed her a little further. I said, that's fine, I, I don't need it. I'll, I'll go on without it. She's captivated by it. In fact, Emily said to me last Sunday when I came back, she said uh, that um, they'd been up for 45 minutes trying to find the Beanie Boo because Harriet refused to go to bed without the Beanie Boo next to her. She's captivated by this, this item, this object. We're captivated by all sorts of things, but the Bible's central point is that we are to be people who are captivated by God. By God. Jesus, in, Mark, in Matthew 22, is asked to summarise the law. Right? And he says this. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of yourself, he says. All of you for all of God. Is that not a statement about being captivated by being completely and utterly focused on God? Jesus says, the whole of the Old Testament, you could summarise it by this one key command that you need to be completely given over to God. Paul, in his letter to Colossians, starts his first chapter by extolling the nature of Christ. He talks about uh, that the fact that all of creation was created through Christ, for Christ, by Christ. He says that Jesus existed before all of creation. Such is the extraordinary nature of Jesus. And then, and then what is he, what's his point? He draws it all to conclusion and he says in verse 18, he says, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is all those things and therefore he must be treated as number one. Therefore, he must be treated as number one. Jesus tells a great... There's a great moment. He doesn't tell a great story. He has a great moment in the Gospels where he encounters two sisters, Mary and Martha. Maybe you remember the story. He comes to their house and Martha is busily preparing. She's preparing the meal and preparing the house. Meanwhile, Mary's just kind of sitting at his feet. Martha comes in and scolds Mary. Says to Jesus, won't you rebuke my sister for doing nothing? And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, your sister has chosen the better course. She's chosen to be captivated by Jesus. She's chosen to make Jesus her central and primary focus in that moment. At the cost of doing other good things, she's captivated by Jesus. Uh, you know, interestingly, when we, when we first met here on this site back in 1871... They met on a, on a Saturday morning, the, the little history booklet tells us, they met on a Saturday morning, it was raining, it was pouring, a bit like last weekend, so they pushed the service back to four o'clock, and they started the service with this song, "All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. What a symbolic way to start your church gathering, your first church gathering on the site. All hail the power of Jesus' Name. You see, the Christian faith is not primarily about you and me. It's about Jesus Christ. And the vision of the Christian life is first and foremost one of pursuing Christ, of prizing Christ, of prioritizing Christ, of being captivated by Jesus Christ and all that he is, and all that he is. 
I mean, if you could summarise and say the primary purpose of God's people and his church is to pursue and prize Jesus Christ. The purpose of God's people and his church is to pursue and prize Jesus Christ. So if we start anywhere with a vision for the next five years, a vision that goes beyond COVID, beyond online streaming, beyond 1.5 metre gaps, we say that the primary purpose of God's church is to pursue Jesus Christ, is to prize Jesus Christ, is to be captivated by Jesus Christ, because as he says in Colossians, he is the supreme one. He is the supreme one. Now, that sounds really good. In fact, someone at 8am after they heard the sermon, they said, oh, you know, the problem is that I always, I always resonate with Martha. I always feel sorry for Martha. Don't we all feel a bit sorry for Martha? Yes, we do. Why do we find it so difficult to, to just sit at the feet of Jesus? Why is it so difficult to say that our whole life is going to be about Jesus? Why do we find it so difficult to... To, to not have these moments where we disappear off and we're consumed by something else. Well, here's something that's really interesting about this passage and Paul's vision of his life. He points actually to the things that distract us in the next little section, and it's not, interestingly, sin as we would think about it. You know, Paul has lists in the New Testament where he talks about, uh, you know, uh, sexual morality and greed and vice and all these other things. But it's not really a vice list, actually, that he says is at the heart, the problem, the thing that distracts us from Jesus. It's something else. Here it is, verse 4 through to 7. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Now, what's really interesting is just in that first part of that, verses 4, 5, and 6, is that is actually an extraordinary list of achievements. It's a bit like a resume of cultural and social capital for Paul. Okay, you go through those things. They're pretty extraordinary. Circumcised on the eighth day, that, that means that he, his upbringing is exactly in line with Jewish culture, Jewish heritage of the people of Israel. There's only one nation in the Old Testament that's chosen by God. Only one nation, it's Israel. It's a small nation, so it's a small group of people who can say they come from this background, but that's Paul. And he's of the tribe of Benjamin. There's 12 tribes. There's one tribe, really, that manages to kind of hold the line during Israel's history, and it's the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means back at home, when he grew up, he didn't speak, he didn't speak Greek. He wasn't a Jew who kind of assimilated into the surrounding culture. He still spoke Hebrew. In regard to the law of Pharisee, now we read that and we think, oh, that's, that's probably not a good thing, but in his time that meant he is someone who knew the law. He had the highest level of, of kind of intellectual comprehension of the Jewish culture. He knew the law. Uh, he persecuted the church. That means he was completely, wholeheartedly in for the Jewish religion and Jewish faith. And as for righteous based on the law, he says faultless. Like he knows the law and he's put it into practice. And there is not something that someone can point to and say, you have not done that. That is an extraordinary list of achievements. It's an extraordinary list of, of virtues, so to speak, and value, value moments. 
Right? These are the things that makes Paul respectable in his culture. We read it and we think, big deal. But in his time and place, he is a highly respected, eminent person. Highly respected. But then he says something very interesting. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. In fact, uh, I mean, what Paul's writing, he's writing in Greek, right? So sometimes these words can mean a few things when you translate them across. If you were to retranslate that, you could say, whatever were gains to me, I now consider a hindrance or a hurdle for the sake of Christ. Not just a loss, they're actually something that could be in the way of gaining Christ. He says, all of those good things in that list, all of that cultural capital, all that respectability, I consider that to be a hurdle for gaining Christ. Jim Collins, who wrote a book called Good to Great, which is about kind of leadership, he has a central thesis, which is this. He says, most companies fail to do great things because they settle to do good things. He says, most companies fail to do great things because they settle doing good things. And I reckon you could take that and you could say, actually, Paul, Paul is a, he's applying that philosophy and that principle well before Jim Collins came up with it. Because he's saying, here's a list of good things. I mean, it's good being an Israelite. It's good knowing the Hebrew language. It's good knowing the law. But he says, those are good things, and I have something great, which is to gain Christ, and so I'm going to cast off the good things so that I might focus on the great thing. And the insight here is that if we're not careful, all the good things, all the value moments, all the, all the things that give us respectability are actually the things that can distract us from the great thing of gaining, gaining Christ. I don't know what those respectability things are for you. We have, we have a whole other list. No one cares if we're from the tribe of Benjamin, but they do care what kind of house we live in or, or how far we've climbed up professionally. Or as a parent, we care about whether our kids are balanced. You know, are they resilient? That's the buzzword, isn't it? Are they resilient? That's what we care about. If we've got resilient kids, we've done a good job. I mean, we don't even need them to be absolute high achievers. We just want them to be well-rounded. That's our respectability criteria, isn't it? And as a church, we're a good community. We're a loving community. We're warm. We're friendly. Is that what makes us feel good about ourselves? Now here, Paul keeps pushing. He says, all those things are good things. They're not... They are not the vice list that we expected, which would distract us from pursuing Christ. But he says, I consider them to be a hindrance, to be a hurdle. I consider them loss so that I might gain Christ. I have pushed them away. I see them actually as a hurdle. I treat them accordingly so that rather I might prize Christ and gain Christ and make Jesus Christ the centre of my vision for life. And so it is for us too. All of those things that are listed, they have such a capacity to be a hurdle to gaining Christ. Uh, on, Sunday, on Friday night, we actually talked about this passage as well, and I got one of the boys, this little guy, Sam, he literally comes up to my knee, I reckon. He's, he's a sweet little kid. Um, 
And he came up and I got him to put all these clothes on, just these jacket upon jacket upon jacket. He looked hilarious. Um, shout out to you, Sam, if you watch this video later. Um, and I, you know, I, said to the, I said to the guys, see, that's what it's like in our culture when we live by that respectability, that value structure. Right? It's burdensome because you just keep putting more things on. You know, you put some achievement on. Then you put, some, you put a renovation on. You put a schooling on. You put moral cohesiveness on. Moral conservatism on. But the product is you just feel burdened by all that. You feel more and more burdened by it. No wonder Paul says it's a hurdle to gaining Christ. It, just, it restricts your capacity to move. You're flailing about, but you're doing little. And actually, even more seriously, it's not just that it makes your life burdensome. It actually blocks God out. Because what you start to do, and this is what Paul realised about his list, you see, what you start to do is you start to look at all these things and think, that's why I'm worthwhile, because I was a Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, because I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. You start to value your worth based on whatever that list is. As a church, we start to value ourselves based on whether we've ticked off these particular markers of a fruitful and healthy fellowship. But the way you value yourself is in relation to God. And of course, once you shift God out of the centre and you put that list in the middle, what you have, that is sin. That's how that list becomes a list of sin, you see. Whatever those things are, those good things, they become ultimate things, they replace God, and they become a hindrance and a hurdle to gaining Christ. Not just because you're not looking at Christ anymore, you're not focused on it, because you have actually fundamentally been separated from God at that moment. You've been separated from God at that moment. And that isn't true for us as individuals and it's true for us as a church that we have the capacity, you see, to take good things, make them ultimate things and therefore lose the great thing of Jesus Christ. Lose the great thing of Jesus Christ. So what can reorient us? That's, that's the key question, isn't it? What can reorient us? What is it that reoriented Paul? Because he lived his life for a long time on this basis. For a long time he lived his life on that basis. So what is it that reorients us? Well, the answer is actually in verse 12. This is the key verse. He says, Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on... I have a vision of life. I press on to take hold of that, and here's the key bit, for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. You know what reorients Paul? The gospel of grace, which says that before he was zealous for God, God was zealous for him. Before he was captivated by God, God was captivated by him. You know, um, our kids, uh, our two older kids, are kind of at that stage where they get nightmares, particularly Sam. And so we'll be sitting downstairs, um, and suddenly we hear this thumping sound, and it's because Sam is kicking the wall. His bed's right next to the wall. He's just kicking the wall. And so one of us sort of trapes upstairs, and sure enough, he's calling out for us. And um, we'll go in, and I'll... I'll you can see he's kind of agitated, he's flailing around, hence he's kicking the wall. 
and I'll sit down on the bed and I'll pick him up and I'll give him a cuddle. And at first, he's still flailing around because he's actually still asleep. He's in the midst of his nightmare. And then suddenly he, he wakes up and he realises that he's actually already in Dad's arms. And he just he relaxes almost immediately. But he has to wake up to relax, you see. He has to wake up to relax. And that's what happens to Paul on the Damascus Road. He wakes up and he realises that Jesus Christ has already taken hold of him. And he relaxes. And all he's flailing about, all his value searching, all his courage, heritage, all that stuff that drove him for so long, is just dissipated. It's not important. It's garbage. It's a loss. Because Jesus Christ has taken hold of him. He's captivated by the gospel which says that before he was captivated by God even, God was captivated by him. Now, you might not even like the word captivated because it feels kind of fluffy and sentimental, right? But how about this? This is uh, Jesus in John 3.16, famous verse. Put a little emoji in. People, people don't like the heart emoji. You know why? Because it feels sentimental, doesn't it? It feels sentimental. But listen to the verse. For God so loved the world. Isn't that the language of being captivated? For God so loved the world. He was so captivated by his world. He was so zealous for his people. For God so... And if you think, it's, if you think I'm overplaying it, just keep reading the verse, of course. That he gave his one and only son. There is no sentiment that can capture deeply the cost the depth of God's love for you God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son you see the thing that will reorient us as as individuals, as a church is a rich, a deep understanding, experience faith, trust, belief that God is more captivated with you than you will ever be with him You know, a realisation that Jesus Christ was willing to let go of his life on the cross so that he could take hold of your life. That's the gospel. And that gospel, it changes your life. It changes your life. Because Paul then goes on, he says in verse uh, 10, he says, I want to know Christ. He's talking about this gospel, right? I want to know grace. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That is an extraordinary verse. You see, when you get grace, you get so much. When you believe in the gospel of grace, it transforms you. You see what he's saying? To know Christ means to know the power of his resurrection, that is present power. To know that the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead after being dead for three days, the God of that power is at work in your life. Present power. And then he goes on and says, and participation in sufferings. And so he says, it means that your suffering suddenly has purpose. Because your suffering is part of this great story. You're actually participating with Christ. I mean, most of the problems of our hardship are asking the question, why is this happening? And Paul answers it, and the gospel answered it. And so he says, you participate with Christ. Your sufferings have a purpose. And then he goes on, he says, somehow it blows his mind. He cannot even understand it himself. That he might, that we might, 
attain to the resurrection of the dead. It gives you hope for the future. Power in the present, purpose in suffering, hope for the future. That's what comes from the gospel. That's what comes from a gospel of grace where Jesus Christ let go of his life so he could take hold of yours. That's what happens when Jesus Christ takes hold of your life. And the more we believe this, the more we see what's on offer in the gospel of grace, the more we'll be captivated by Jesus. The more we'll prize him. The more, like Paul, we'll say, forgetting what is behind, I press on to the goal for which Jesus Christ has called me heavenward. Now, what does all this mean for vision, for a vision of our church? Well, here it is. We cannot be people captured by just good things. We've got to go for the great thing. There's lots of good things that we can do. We can say, we want to be a community that's welcoming and warm. Of course we want to be that. We want to, we want to do parenting well. We want to do finances well. All of those things are good things. But let those things not distract us from the great thing of the gospel, which is the gospel of grace that God has called us to. That has got to be the centre that has got to be the thing that we pour our time and our money into. That is what we have to do as parents. That is the thing that we have to long for our kids, that they might know the gospel of grace which frees us, which releases us from the burdens and which brings us back to God, which provides us power in the present, which provides us purpose in suffering, which provides us a hope for the future. That's the thing that we have to long for, for our fa- friends, for our family, for our nation, for our world. That is the thing that has to be the centre of any vision that we have for a church going forward. Five years, ten years, fifty years, or as long as the Lord may tarry. That is it, you see. Everything else, everything else is good, but unnecessary. And to be honest, not that important. This is great. We want to be a church that has great things. And we don't want to get distracted by just doing good things. And the gospel is the greatest news. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the extraordinary news of the gospel that we don't need anything to come to you because Jesus Christ has already taken hold of us, that he gave himself up on the cross for us, that you have been captivated by us, that you have loved us before we loved you, And Lord God, we pray that your Holy Spirit might drive that central truth deep into our hearts and so change our vision of our life as individuals and as a community so that the central purpose, the thing that we prize more than anything else, is your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.